Good morning, everyone. Oh, I'm so glad to be back with you all. I want to say welcome to anyone that's new. I know we had some people sign up new and um, are excited about coming in, so welcome if you're new um, this winter to Bible study. I hope you feel welcome, and I hope you (laughs) feel encouraged. Sorry, getting used to it. I'm so thankful to be back after a long break. I feel like, I don't know, about last week, I'm like, this is enough. I need... (laughs) We need to just get back on schedule. <laughs> I get, um, I just started getting like floundering. Oh, my schedule doesn't feel like my routine. <laughs> so Bible study is definitely a part of it. Um, I, I was really thankful to be with all of you that were able to make it to the Christmas social. It was a very sweet event to be with you all for Christmas. And um, after that, you know, my break was full of changes um, my, and I shared at the social a little bit, my parents came to live with us temporarily from Idaho until they find a home with my brother's family. And so, you know, it's been like a full house for real, sorry. Um, so, and then um, we've just had like sickness and injuries. I'm just gonna give you a little update on my life now. It's like, <laughs> like we were in the ER once and urgent care another time, but like my ER experience, let me tell you. I have a daughter, she's 13. She was practicing ballet with her friends and then, you know, that same night I'm like, um, I don't know if you ever had this when your kids were younger, if you have kids now, like, we were like, we're we're all done, like, it's bedtime early, like, you need to go to bed now, (laughs) like, it's it's time for you to rest, like, we just had such a long day and so she's in her room all by herself, like, kicking with her leg and (laughs) <laughs> she all alone and she fell back and lost consciousness and then woke up with like severe pain in her arm and so nobody and she didn't know what happened like she just remember kicking <laughs> so we're in the ER and there's like someone throwing up behind me and someone coughing up stuff here and a baby that's really sick next to me like uh, like right next to me <laughs> Someone that had cancer right in front of me that was like in writhing pain. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, why are we here? This is a t- I hate the ER. It was so full. Anyway, that was my that was a part of my Christmas. We had a lot of stuff like that, like, you know. But we survived. She apparently uh, stretched a nerve, which I didn't know you could do. But it's really painful. It's like so painful you pass out. <laughs> so your body's like, that's enough. We'll just take a break. So. She's yielding up now. She doesn't even wear a sling anymore, so I'm really thankful. Yeah, so there. I don't know if y'all had Christmas like break that was that kind of crazy, but I am so glad that we're going back to normal. So anyway, that was a really long explanation. But um, anyway, I because it's been so long since we've been together in Acts, I wanted to just take a little time to review, but I didn't want to do like a detailed review because we kind of did that last time we met. So um, I thought about it and I was like, what if, we, what if I just share with you my um, section titles 
for each section. So that's what I'm going to do. Because I don't know, for you that are new in the booklets, there's the, every day one we do kind of the same thing. We kind of dig in certain ways in the passage to familiarize ourselves with it before we answer questions. And I love day one. This is a little plug for day one. I love day one. Because <laughs> at the end of that, you get to sum up the passage in one sentence. And so, um, it's like a chapter title, but it's not a whole chapter, you know? And so um, I'm just gonna sum up the last five chapters with my titles for you all. <laughs> um, so, let me see. Here we'll go, we'll start in chapter one. Jesus leaving his final instructions for his followers. That's where he left his final instructions. And then Jesus' ascension. And then the believers choose Matthias. So this is gonna be kinda choppy, but I hope you guys can follow with me. That was chapter one. Chapter two was the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches to the crowd and many respond and get saved. And the church is born and there's unity. That's chapter two. Chapter three is the healing of the lame man by Peter and John. And Peter preaches at the temple and many believe. And then, I don't know if you remember, chapter four is when um, Peter and John get arrested because they're getting a lot of attention at the temple, and there's, they were questioned and then released. The early church's prayer and the answer from God after that situation, and then the church takes care of each other, and then we saw Barnabas' good example of generosity. In chapter five, we saw Ananias and Sapphira's bad example and death. We saw church growth, and the apostles get thrown into jail, all of them. <laughs> An angel releases them, they're flogged, and continue to preach in the temple. And that's where we left off, right before Thanksgiving. So that's one page sum up <laughs> of the last five chapters. And I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed just going through those, those chapters and learning. And I don't know, it's been very, very fruitful. I just feel like it's been wonderful. So, so anyway. I was listening to Pastor Skip, um, I don't know how to say his last name, Heinzig, <laughs> yeah, yeah, y'all know. <laughs> and he, had, he made a comment about um, how he sees math in Acts, and I just thought it was so funny because, you know, I'm in the math world, I homeschool my kids, this is like what we do, we're always, I will forever know things about math I didn't know when I, before I homeschooled, but this is the, my trenches, is math with my kids. But he was like, you know, I see math in Acts. So he said, he just explained that, and I thought, I thought I would share it. He sees God adding to the church through numbers of people that are believing despite persecution. So we see a lot of adding going on in Acts. And then he, he said he saw a lot of subtracting, and we have um, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how God has removed and subtracted, and the purifying of the church and its growth. And then he pointed out in our passage that we're gonna talk about today that we will see division arise in the church, you know. <laughs> and, um, and he points out that we have, you know, what we've taken note before, what we've seen before in Acts, which is that God's doing something, whenever God is doing a good work, a big work, um, the enemy is hotly pursuing you know, during that. And I, I know, you know, we've kind of experienced that. If you, you know, if you walk with Jesus for a while and, you know, when God is doing a work, a lot of times that's when a lot of spiritual attack happens. 
We definitely saw that in chapter five, the chapter we studied before Thanksgiving, with all the power and the miracles that the Lord was doing in the midst of the church, there was also a lot of hostility against the believers. And I, it is just true, you know, it's true. Like Pastor Ryan was saying on Sunday, you know, especially for the leaders of the church, there is a, mark, you know, a target marked on each one for attack. And I think we can all relate. Many times when God's at work, um, we experience a lot of attack. And I feel it too, you know, I mean, since coming on to oversee the women's ministry this last year, this new position that I've had, I've experienced spiritual attacks like I have never experienced before. I'm like, wow, this is a whole new level. Like, <laughs> it's bad before. But, you know, and a lot of times, I don't know if any of you go through this when you feel spiritually attacked, but I question, like, what am I doing? Am I, should I be doing this job? Like, this is hard. This is so intense. <laughs> but every time, you know, God brings me back to a place of reminding me um, that he called me to this place. And, and what I've been learning is just because I, sometimes I feel like I'm in the fire, it doesn't mean that I'm in the wrong place, you know? And I want to encourage you all with that too. Like if you're going through something intense, you feel spiritually attacked, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. It probably means that you're in the right place, you know? It, it probably means that, so... So just like the apostles in chapter five, they were jailed and probably believed that they were gonna die for Jesus, yet God released them and called them back into the fire. You know, go back to the temple and preach, do exactly what you were doing before you got arrested. Um, so we learn that we, continu we continue on in what God calls us to do despite the attacks of the enemy. He gives us a grace for it, and I can't explain it, you know? I just know that he's faithful. Um, so there's a little bit of a summary. <laughs> um, I, I wanna jump into our passage now in chapter six today. As we go through it, I want you to look for the division, so to speak, <laughs> that Pastor Skip mentions. And I wanted to add before I read that I love that when we read through Acts, God doesn't cherry coat the beginnings of the church, you know, for us in Acts. He doesn't, he doesn't fail to mention the hard stuff. You know, it's not all about the wonderful, great things that the Lord did in the church. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know. Um, we can relate, and I'm thankful for that, that he, he allows us to see all of that, because we can relate and know that we're not the only church that struggles, you know, here and there. So let's go ahead and read Acts 6, 1. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. We see here that a complaint arose in the church. I liked looking at the different translations in this, on this verse and how it was described um, for, with the word complaining. On other translations, we see the word murmuring or discontent. And I liked the way the New Living Translation um, put it. They did a good job describing it and said, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distri distribution of food. That was the NLT's version of it. There were rumblings of discontent among the believers as the church grew. When I looked into the Greek, it described the specific word complaining um, in our verse and how it was used 
in the Greek description was a, a secret displeasure not expressed openly. So it implies that the people were discontent and they were talking with one another but not openly with the people that maybe needed to be talked to, right? And in this case, in our passage, it's not good that the widows are being overlooked. Like, this part's not good. It was something that needed to be dealt with. But notice it doesn't say that the Hellenistic Jews came and talked to the leadership, the apostles, but they were complaining to the native Jews. They were complaining to one another. The apostles heard about it because it was causing division. And so, my friends, here we see where division begins a lot of times, not all the time. It begins a lot of times with discontent, secret murmuring, and complaining. Does it always mean we will be divided if we complain? You know, Is it wrong to have an opinion or feel a certain way about how something should be handled? You know, No. I don't think it's wrong to have an opinion about something at all. We all have them, right? <laughs> um, but what you do with your opinion matters. You know, do you allow it to turn into discontent and complaining to others? And how could discontentment and complaining be bad or divisive? I thought about that. If you take it beyond yourself and you decide to talk about it with other people, people that can do nothing to bring about change, and it, then it just spreads. You know, um, we have to be so careful, ladies. This is truly a trap from the enemy for every church, right? If you see a lack of something and needs, it needs attention from the body, in the body of Christ, <clears throat> pray about it. I encourage you to pray about it. Talk to the Lord about it first. Pray about who to talk to in the church and examine your own heart. Test, test it to see if your heart is, is in it to complain or is it in it because you want it to see help, you want help there. Once you get that straight before the Lord, then seek him about who would be appropriate to talk to about it. Maybe it's your spouse to start with, or your mentor, or leadership in the church. These are all really good options to start with, you know, because they can help you navigate your feelings and may give direction, you know, to you on what part, you know, on your part in the change it might you know, what you could possibly do to help. Um, I can't even tell you how many times people, how many people I've talked to um, that find so much joy in our fellowship, you know, and then over time, they lose their joy because of unrealistic or too high of expectations that maybe should never have been there about people or leaders or ministries, you know. Unrealistic expectations of people can only lead to disappointment and when those expectations aren't met, you know. And if that complaining spirit or discontent, discontented heart is not laid before the Lord, we lose joy and division begins, you know. It starts in our hearts. Um, I've always thought discontent is the killer of joy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it just does, you know. You could have peace and joy and then if you go down the road of discontent, it just like squelches it out over time. Um, if a complaining spirit or discontent heart is not laid before the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, I just said that. So, <laughs> so we can see this happening in our passage today, right? The problem lay with what was going on with the Hellenistic Jewish widows and the native Jews. When you see the word Hellenistic, it means in essence the embracing of Greek culture which would include the language, you know, hence the majority of the people, you know, in Jesus' time, Jewish people were speaking Greek uh, regularly. 
um, across the Mediterranean. <laughs> and there was, you know, the Greek art was influential in that region, um, architecture that was Greek, math, music, science, and it's because, you know, in this time period, it's the Roman time period, but before the Roman time period, there was the Greeks, and that was Alexander the Great, and he conquered all these lands, and as he conquered, he left the Greek influence, you know, like, and, and a lot of times, I, I, I was trying to read up again on it, because I learned about it a long time ago, but he would have those cultures learn Greek, like everyone needed to have this language, and it, it helped grow his empire to have it be that way. It was a smart way to conquer, I guess you could say. But, um, and so when we get to Jesus' time, in this time of Acts, everyone spoke Greek and they had very much the Greek culture they were very familiar with. So within the early church, there are Jews that are influenced by the Greek culture and then there are some Jews who held tightly to the Hebrew roots and the, the Hebrew culture. Racially, they were the same, but culturally they had differences, right? It was very likely that there were judgments on one another and possibly segregating within the group, you know, because of the cultural differences. Um, you know, over the last few years since COVID, we've had a lot of people from various church backgrounds come to Calvary, you know, and, and our church is so much more diverse um, now than when it was like a five years ago or six years ago, um, you know, especially like where people land theologically. It's just, you know, because you have lots of people coming from all different places, and so it's like a melting pot a little bit. And I think that there's a beauty there. I like that. <laughs> I like that we're all different, <laughs> you know, um, and that when we come together, we're coming together because our, our one thing we have unity in is the gospel, right? Um, it is the main thing. And there's a lot of growth that happens when we're all so different because we have to strive harder to live in unity, right? We have to strive a little harder. <laughs> and it takes humility there to have unity, to, to be different and learn how to be together. It takes humility. And a, a wrestling with what's worth dividing over, you know? That's why it's so important to look at our differences and think, is this a gospel issue, right? These two groups in our text today with their differences ended up having a problem, and in the working out of the problem, the early church gained something, which would, it really needed at this point, which was organization, right? Let's read in verses two through four. It says, so the 12 summoned the congregation of disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see here the 12 apostles gathering the whole church and asking them to pick seven men to take an overseeing of the serving of the people, take it, take it on, the overseeing of the service. And at first glance, it may seem like the apostles are like holier than thou, you know? Like, the, <laughs> you ever read things and you hear, your, you hear a different attitude in it than that's actually there, you know? <laughs> like, that's how I read it, honestly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like, like, we weren't meant to serve tables. You got more important things to do, like preach the word in prayer, you know? <laughs> but you have to be careful when you read the text. You have to read it and look at all of it in context and, and, and ask yourself, was that really their heart? So I had to do that. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so was that their heart? Should the leaders of the church give the responsibilities of serving the church to others, or was it their responsibility? And I think that there are a few things going on here that we should look at. First, the church was getting big. 
the dynamics were changing. Maybe originally when it was tiny, it didn't matter who helped with what, because it was small, because the needs were not so demanding. Um, I heard a pastor put it, as a church grows, it's still organic, but it must also become organized, you know? Some people want the church to be organic and spirit-led, and like, they feel like that's the only way it should go, but others just, and others can go to the other extreme, you know, they want it to be very organized and lots of programs, like it needs to be orderly all the way. And I think that there's a balance, you know? Um, just like God and who he is, he created the universe, and it is organic, but it's very orderly. It's organized, <laughs> you know? And so I, I see the same thing in church, you know? We need both because, the or they needed both because the church was getting big. And so it makes sense for the church leaders to start delegating things out so that it doesn't weigh solely on them to do everything, right? They get burned out if they do that. And so I don't think that was their attitude. <laughs> it wasn't like, eh, you know, we got other more important things to do. No, they just saw what the need was and realized, we can't do it all, and we have to figure out a way to order it. And so we see here that they um, uh, picked seven capable men to do the job well, to find that they could do the job well, and they gave qualifications for these men. Um, three different things. They were to have a good reputation, they were to be full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. I thought a lot about why these men that were chosen to oversee serving tables would need these qualifications. The job seemed pretty basic to me, and maybe seemingly not as important as preaching the word and praying, right? So I think we go like that in our mind. But as we look deeper into the qualifications, we see the need that there were qualifications because this position is not lesser than the apostles. It was ministering to the people just like the apostles, but in just different roles. And isn't that kind of how it is with all our gifts? We're, we're all serving the Lord. So it doesn't make it like more important, less important. That's not, I don't think, the way that God views it. The apostles and these men serving tables were all serving the church. It just looked different. When people are chosen to care for the needs of the people, they must be people that love, right? Why did they need to have a good reputation to oversee the service of the people? Why would they need that qualification? Because they're engaging with people's needs and people are watching them, right? And maybe even following their example. Why would they need to be full of wisdom to oversee the serving of people? Because when they work with people, they will need wisdom to manage the affairs and conflicts that come up because they're working with people, right? <laughs> it's like, why do they need to be full of the Spirit and serve the people of the church? Because they need the Spirit to produce fruit of, the fruit of love and patience and gentleness when they're working with people. They weren't serving the tables, they were serving people. That's something my husband said. He's like, they weren't serving the tables. <laughs> they were serving people. I'm like, good point. That's a very good point. <laughs> so, you know, in our flesh, we can be so ugly in our hearts with people. It can be difficult to love people. Chuck Smith pointed out, the qualifications by which they chose these men, they would have been all qualified ministers of the gospel for sure. As we move on in the book of Acts, we will see Stephen being used in, by God in things other than waiting tables. But that's where he went to begin his ministry. God often does not start people where they want to start when it comes to serving. I don't know if you all have experienced that. I've experienced that. You know, when I was in Bible college, I was in my final year before I graduated, and I had to do a type of internship somewhere where I practiced all the things I learned, right? <laughs> 
And Ben and I had just got married, my husband and I, and we were coming here to this church, and we had just moved into this building, and I, I liked children, so, and I was majoring in education, and so <laughs> I had taken so many classes on how to run a ministry and how to organize it and all of these things. I had taken lots. My head was full of stuff, right? <laughs> came with lots of big ideas, and I asked the church if I could intern here in the children's ministry under Carla Jones, and uh, they said, okay, and every time I came in, I made copies, and I cut cutouts for Sunday school, <laughs> and that is all. <laughs> that is all I did. <laughs> I think I cleaned stuff, and I organized a room that didn't stay that way for very long. <laughs> so, you know, I was humbled, and I struggled, honestly, feeling like I wanted to use all the stuff I had learned. I had knowledge, and I wanted to use how to run ministries and how to, you know, teach children, and I just had all these ideas I wanted to use. But God taught me through that experience that there is value in doing what I don't want to do and that he had something for me to learn in it, right? I learned by what I watched a lot. I watched the pastors in the office and how they were with each other. I watched how Carla handled the people she worked with. I learned that it didn't matter how much education I had. <laughs> it mattered how much grace I needed and how much humility was required to serve. Um, ladies, I encourage you, if you don't feel like you're where you ought to be in the ministry and in church, you know, take that to the Lord and let him grow you where you're actually planted. Trust him in the process. He has things for you right where you are. And it's always likely he will use you later in different ways. It's like we never stayed the same, <laughs> you know? So let's read in verses five through seven. It says, the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procreus, I'm not gonna say this right, <laughs> Nicanor, Timian, I was like Parmesan, but it's not Parmesan, Parmesan, <laughs> Parmenas, Nicholas, I got that one, <laughs> a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. It's so interesting here that the men chosen, all of these men, had Greek names. Which is to say they picked men that would minister directly to the people and their specific needs and concerns, the people that were being affected. It's subtly shown that the apostles in the church saw the need and met it in an appropriate way that would eliminate debate and complaints, right? It was interesting who they chose. That could, they knew what exact needs were. We also see here the mention of Stephen and Philip. Both men went on to be used in other ways beyond serving tables. And I don't, they don't, in scripture we don't hear a lot about these other men that were mentioned, but who knows what God did with them after that. Stephen, we'll see in the next verse and chapter, he did much more than serving the people of the church. He went on to perform miracles and preach. Philip went on to become an evangelist, going on to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see in our passage that the apostles, they lay their hands on them after praying, which is a fascinating word study. You guys should look it up sometime, if you haven't already, for you who like to dig deeper. I highly encourage you to cross-reference the phrase, laid their hands on them. 
It could either be really negative or it could be really positive. <laughs> but all the, pauses, the places where the church is doing that, or even in the Old Testament, it's in the Old and the New. It's a fascinating study. I didn't have time to talk about it today, so you should do it. <laughs> but in essence, it's a sign of approval, that laying on of hands. Let's move on and take a look at verses eight through 10. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some, some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Syrians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicily, Sicily, okay, <laughs> you know that one, Silica. <laughs> that place right there is where Paul is from. So very, this is, Paul was there, obviously, we'll find out, but anyway. And Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, we see God doing a work through one of his followers, and hot on the heels is resistance, right? Hot on his heels, and the enemy's attacks. I love how Stephen is described in verse eight as full of grace and power. The way this word grace was defined in the Greek expresses that he had the capacity and the ability to have grace due to the grace that God had given him in his life, right? The more grace we experience with God, the more he fills us to give it to others, you know? And so men from various groups rose up to argue with Stephen and were not able to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It's interesting, these men that rose up against Stephen couldn't argue with the miracles, right? They couldn't argue with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, right? And so what do they do? Let's look at verses 11 through 15. It says, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him out away and brought him before the council. They put forth false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against his holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that the, this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So what did the leaders do? They got sneaky and they lied. They couldn't play a fair fight and so they played dirty, right? I would imagine that Stephen was making the case to the people and the men he spoke to that Jesus was who he said he was and that the Old Testament could prove it, you know? And we will see much of this in the next two weeks when he gives his, his um, talk. Um, when we get to study that, um, but he will make this case before these leaders. It's just not enough for someone to speak the truth to the people. The people listening must have a willingness to be challenged and a humility to accept that they may be believing something that's not true, right? When there's no willingness or humility to acknowledge that we're wrong, pride can often get in the way. And that's what we see in this story with these leaders. Pride can drive people to lie and all kinds of sin bind them, you know, can bind them to, do, to work against what the Lord is doing. I believe this is the case in our passage today. These leaders wanted to silence Stephen and they wanted the miracles to stop. They want to take him down. They want to take him down, <laughs> just like Jesus. They wanted to take him down just like Jesus. This is very similar. Um, they couldn't argue with the miracles or his words or the wisdom, so they brought people forward to falsely accuse him. And what did they accuse him of? 
speaking against the holy place, the temple, the law, and that Jesus will destroy the temple and the customs that Moses handed down. Stephen was probably teaching that Jesus taught, you know, what Jesus taught about the, the coming destruction of the temple, or that having the law of Moses wasn't enough for salvation, and that you must have Jesus to save you. But we see the people twisted it slightly, right? And they didn't report all of what he was saying, and it was very manipulative. One of the hardest things to do, one of the hardest things is to be lied about or misunderstood, right? It's so messy and can be so discouraging. But we can look at how Stephen handled it and, and we can find encouragement. It didn't take him, make, it didn't make him doubt what he taught or even discourage him because he knew the Spirit was working through him. He was full of the Spirit. And in verse 15, he's described as having the face of an angel in an intense moment, right? The angel, an angel by definition is a messenger of God, one that is sent by God. You know, Stephen's not an angel, but his face resembled one, which I found fascinating, one that is bringing a message, one who is sent, right? I thought this is such an interesting description of someone. Um, David Guzik explained what he imagined a face of an angel looking like, someone who is close to God and reflecting his glory, right? Like Moses after being with God in Exodus 34. This is much like what I imagine when I think of this description. You know, it's a picture of like perfect peace, not fear or terror, because he knew his life was in God's hands. What a gift God gave him in the intense moment when the leaders are looking at him intensely. You know, it's like definitely an intense part of the story right here. Um, You know, we can look at the story and see God's faithfulness to steady a person and fill them to overflowing in the midst of an intense situation. He can do that with us. You know, if you're in an intense situation or a season of life, whether it's experiencing your own persecution with family or coworkers or friends because of your faith, you know, look here to Stephen. If God can fill him with wisdom in the moment, grace and peace, he wants to do that with you as well. He can do that. Charles Spurgeon said, I love this, When you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a smile on your lips. When you teach on hell, your normal your normal face will do just fine. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah. No no matter what intensity we face, you know, if we look, (laughs) if we look to God to meet our needs, you know, He uses the Spirit to help us and encourage us. This story reminds us of similar principles that we've seen just throughout the book of Acts, which is God never calls us to a safe life in him, right? This is like totally contradictory to our world and our way of thinking today in the world, you know? He he doesn't call us to a safe life, right? (laughs) He didn't the apostles, that's for sure, and not Stephen, right? He never promised us ease and no persecution. He never promised that to us. He actually told us to expect it. (laughs) But when we follow and serve him, we may feel like we're in the fire, you know? But he is always with us. This earth is not our home. We can count on the fact that he is with us and and he can give us the grace, faith, and wisdom and filling of the spirit that we need the most. And when we need it the most, What we need is humility to receive it, right? We need him in 
if we're struggling with discontent, right? Like we talked about earlier, if you're in that place this morning, I encourage you to take your complaints to him. You know, ask God to examine your heart to root out any heart issues that might be there. Sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not. I encourage you to ask God to give you his mind and perspective about things. See if your mind changes, you know. If it doesn't and you're still struggling, talk to leadership. God's heart for us in this church is unity. It takes work to maintain it and, and it takes humility. If God has you in a hard season, you know, like Stephen's in, you know, um, I want to encourage you to cling to him. That is why he had the face of an angel. His focus was on Jesus. That's where, you know, I'm personally at right now. I'm in a really hard season with my kids. It's not just the ballet slips. It's like we're in some struggles right now with my kids, and it's a little bit intense, and it's been intense for a long, it feels like forever. (laughs) You know, we're really in the middle of it. But if I don't remember that God is in control and depend on him to get me through it, I'll just fall apart, you know? I'm just like a mess, (laughs) you know? But we have a mighty God, ladies. You know, one who is dependable, one who's perfect, even when we're struggling in our own imperfections. He's perfect. So I encourage you, let's keep seeking him. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for your word and for this example of Stephen and the example of the church, God. I just, um, you're so powerful, Lord, and you're so dependable. (laughs) You're so faithful to us, God. I pray that you would help us to remember that if we're struggling right now, that we would just fix our eyes on you like Stephen did, God, and that you would meet us and encourage us and prepare us for what you have, God. I I lift up this small group time and just wherever you want these discussions to go, I pray your hand upon them and that you would just use, use this time, Lord, to encourage, encourage and convict and grow us, Lord. We just need, we need your spirit and we, we want that growth, God. So we invite you to do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.